If you have an interest in horses and love learning more about horses, the horse industry, teaching, or even managing your own horse business, then you're in the right place. We would love you to join us on our mission, which is to improve the lives of horses around the world through the education of riders, handlers, and trainers. So get comfortable, listen in, and enjoy. Today's chat's been brought to you by International Horse College. We have a mission to improve the welfare of horses throughout the world through the safe education of riders, handlers and trainers and that's what these chats are all about. Registered Training Organisation 31352. Our guest today is Dr Kiralee Thompson. Kiralee's a horse owner but she's also a cultural anthropologist with a special interest in human-horse relations and that's what we're going to talk about a bit today. How are you Kiralee? I'm very well, thank you, Glenneth. Good, good. Now, Kiralee, I understand you've got a couple of quotes for us. What would you like to start with? Yeah, there's there's quotes that have kind of formed in my head over the years, and I don't know exactly where they came from. I know that when I was a teenager, one of my coaches gave me a lot of books to read, and a, quite a few of them were by Charles de Comfy. He's an author that seems to have fallen out of fashion a bit in the last few years, but I suspect he influenced some of the quotations they're not really quotations, I guess, in my head. They've become mantras. Mm -hmm. And one of them is to ask for a lot, but to always be happy with a little. And I, I did a Google to try and find out who this was for you <laughs> before the interview. <laughs> There's something similar that's attributed to Paparelli, and that's expect a lot, accept a little, and reward often. And when it comes to reward, it may also have been Charles de Comfy, who got me thinking that you can never give a horse too many breaks. So with my riding, I try and reward my horse as much as possible with a loose rein walk. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, otherwise I don't know if they've done it right or done it wrong if you don't give them that immediate reward afterwards. Yeah, and I think horses, I don't want my horse to think I'm insatiable. <laughs> I yeah. want my horse to think I'm really easily pleased. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. How did you start with horses? Because you're a horse owner now, you, you know, you've sort of found your way in a roundabout way to work in the horse industry, but how did you actually start? Yeah, I guess I was just one of those horse-crazy kids. I don't know where my horse obsession came from, but I just remember all of my childhood asking for a horse. My parents aren't horsey people. I grew up in the suburbs in Tea Tree Gully in South Australia, and we had Angove's winery was not far from us, and I, I remember doing a handwritten note and putting it in their letterbox, <laughs> walking to school as a kid and saying, if I get a horse, can I keep it in your paddock? Oh, wow. And... Wow. Um, because I think my parents must have said to me, we've got nowhere to keep it and we can't feed it. Mm -hmm. And I seem to maybe have written into that note or approached someone else separately. And my plan was to keep a horse in the paddock Van Gogh's vineyards <laughs> and to feed it on the scraps that law-knowing businesses get. Wow, wow. <laughs> Which, of course, would not, be, would not be very healthy, but this was the plan I'd hatched in my mind. <laughs> and so I was just born as a horse-crazy kid, yep. always nagging my parents for horses. And it wasn't until I was 13 that they were convinced that this wasn't just a fad. And they got me a lease horse. He was a, a horse called Caesar, and he belonged to the secretary of Pegasus Pony Club. And so I leased Caesar and I got into riding that way. And my dad ended up becoming the president of the Pony Club. And he was president for 18 years. His dad stayed on yeah. long after I left. So <laughs> I was born with this horse craziness. Yep. But I think the past it on to my father somehow. <laughs> That's a little bit of a reverse I, one. I isn't spread it, it around, yeah. it's infectious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now what made you decide to have a career with horses? Because you're specialised in human behaviour but now you've sort of made your way back into the horse behaviour. How did that all work out? 
Yeah, I, um, as far as my academic career goes, I tend to have just gone where the doors are open. Mm. So I went to university and got a Bachelor of Social Sciences and I picked up anthropology, to be honest, because it had no exam. <laughs> and it was the kind of, <laughs> it was the subject that people picked up you know, it's kind of the easy one on the side. And I was I studied psychology for two years, English, classics, a lot of the social science kind of fields. And I just happened to do really well in anthropology, seemed to have a natural talent for it, even though I spent most of the lectures catching up on the reading for English because I'm quite slow. <laughs> and after I did anthropology for three years, I decided to do, to do honours. And because I tend to, I, I really love streamlining and I'm not super motivated about things unless I'm passionate about them. So I know you would have guessed by now that I'm passionate about horses. And so doing honours anthropology, anthropology is such a good subject. You can pretty much study anything you like from an and study it from an anthropological perspective. So at the time I was competing in dressage and I pitched the idea of doing an honours thesis about dressage to my supervisor mm. at the time, Fiona McGowan. She was born in Ireland, and she was she is still, I guess, an eventer. So she was very empathetic to me wanting to study dressage. And I spent my honours year doing a study on freestyle dressage to music and looking at the concept of, it, of dancing animals and performing animals. And I took a lot of the literature written around sports studies and a lot of the rich literature written around dance and art, and I brought those two things together around freestyle dressage to music. And I really loved my honours year, and after that I was offered a scholarship from the Australian government for three years to do a PhD. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to take forward that interest I had in dancing animals and look at that for the next three years of my life, which actually turned out to be seven years. Mm -hmm. But anyway, and my supervisor said, why don't I go to Ireland and look at horse markets? And I thought that sounded a bit cold. So <laughs> I was looking up what other countries have a strong tradition of dancing horses. And of course, I turned to Spain. Mm -hmm. And when I was doing background reading on Spain, I realised that there was this form of bullfighting that involved horses. And so that's, I ended up doing my PhD research on bullfighting from horseback, mm -hmm. but drawing on my interests in animals and performance. Okay. Okay. Well, that's sort of a roundabout way. Yeah. It is a roundabout way. But you had horses the whole time because, as you said, you were doing dressage, freestyle, the music, had that interest already. Yep. I kept horses the whole time. Yep. I lived in Spain for 15 months. Mm -hmm. do my doctoral research, and during that time I leased out my mare to a stud to okay. have a foal. Okay. But I've kept horses this whole time. Mm -hmm. If someone wants to work in the horse industry, what do you think are the core skills or character traits that they need? Oh, resilience. <laughs> I'm talking now from academic perspective, but I know as a, as a horse rider and owner that you need resilience in all areas of the horse industry. Mm -hmm. The field of human-animal studies became very popular around 2000. Human-animal studies is the study of the importance of animals in human lives. So for horses, that would be how horses are beneficial for people, how people make their lives meaningful, healthier, happier through horses. And as a cultural anthropologist, I look at this in different cultures around the world and how, th how people do things differently with horses, but mm -hmm. also what might be some of the universal similarities. And so as an academic field, human-animal studies is established, but it's still not very well funded. Most of the research, if someone did want to pursue a research career with horses, my advice, my strategic advice would be head towards the STEM subjects, so science, technology, engineering and medicine, and mm -hmm. that of course would be veterinary medicine. Yep. That's probably where the money is, 
mm-hmm. and that's where the funding is. And as far as funding, the lion's share goes to horse racing research because that's such an impact on Australia's economy. The kind of stuff that I do, it's really hard to get respect that translates into funding. Mm-hmm. And you know, because I'm interested in human, human feelings and human thoughts, mm-hmm. and of course those things are really difficult to quantify, and we live in a society where the things we value are usually the things that we can quantify. Okay. That's just a challenge that I face all the time. Mm. The other challenge that I face is a stereotype that I think exists a lot in government. This stereotype that horse riding is elite and that people voluntarily take part in horse riding because it's a recreational leisure pursuit. And of course that is right to a certain extent. But I've done a lot of research in the last five years or so looking at how we can reduce the rates of injury and death from horse riding. Mm -hmm. And this idea that horse riding is elite and we do it voluntarily is a barrier to trying to get funding for research into preventing injury. And if you think of the the billions of dollars that gets injected into shark bite prevention and hardly any money is given in Australia to reducing horse-related death and fatality, and it's not just for people participating in sport voluntarily, Mm. not that that makes safety any less worthwhile, but we have a whole lot of people who are employed to work with horses. There are people working on stations with horses. There are vets who interact with horses on a daily basis. So horse-related health and safety is is also an issue for work health and safety. So I've spent a good amount of the last five years trying to raise awareness of these issues, simply because if people don't think these issues are important, they're not going to receive funding. Mm-hmm. And we're not going to make the sport safer which is in all of our interests because we want to keep equestrian sport going. We want little clubs to still be able to afford their insurance premiums. Mm -hmm. We want parents to consider equestrian sport as something that they might think of getting their children interested in. Yep. What do you think is the best thing about working in the horse industry? Oh, the horses? Does that that sound too obvious? I think that's a common answer, but you can expand a little bit on that. I interact with horses and I ride horses because it makes me feel good. And that's a completely selfish response, but that's where I feel most like I'm being a better version of myself. I think that's that's probably something a lot of riders feel. And I think that's why we feel so bad on the days where things don't work out. You know, when you're driving out the driveway and you've had a, things haven't gone right and the whole world seems bad because something didn't go right with your horse. Mm-hmm. Our interactions with the horses become so important to how we see the rest of the world. And I think that's why we really need to do things right. Okay. We really need to work on ourselves when we're working with horses and mm-hmm. we need to keep our ethical radar you know, strong and our moral radar strong when we're working with horses because they're the kind of values that we want to take further afield. Yep, yep. Now, you talked about Fiona McGowan and about how she influenced you in your your honours year, wasn't it? Yeah. Who else has influenced you and helped you in your career? Oh, probably so many people. I saw that you've done a horse chat with Di Keach, mm-hmm. and she, I don't know if she still is, but she was very heavily involved with the Pony Club movement in South Australia. Yep. And so I spent a lot of time with Di when she and I were both on the instructors panel, and I think I learnt quite a lot from Di. Mm-hmm. I can't tell you exactly what I learnt, but I know that she was a strong influence. Yep, yep. I hope that makes sense. I also 
when I leased that horse Caesar from Jeanette Fletcher, who was the secretary of Pegasus Pony Club, mm-hmm. I spent a lot of time sleeping over Saturday night so I could get up early and ride to Pony Club. And I would stay in the old bedroom of her daughter, Angela. And Angela had a lot of titles on her shelf. And I read all the Tom Roberts books that she had mm-hmm. with their bright yellow spine. And you might know that Horse SA helped produce a book about Tom Roberts last mm-hmm. year. Mm-hmm. And he's been influential to so many people, including Jill Rolton, who has influenced me so much because you can't be from South Australia. We, we're so fortunate in South Australia. We've had Jill Rolton, Dykeach's son, Wendy Schaefer, Megan Jones, and Erica Taylor. When we just, oh, Scott Keach, of course, is, is the name of Di's son. We're just so spoilt here for people that have really achieved. And these are people who, it's easy to think, you know, we think of riders in Europe and we imagine that they were born into multi-million dollar families and they were given multi-million dollar horses and all the help in the world. And that's probably not true. But I know that these riders in South Australia, I mean, Wendy's horse was a pony club horse and she took it to the Olympics. Mm-hmm. And these are people, that's probably one of the best things about horse riding in Australia is that you don't have to be a member of the elite to have a horse. Mm. And you're competing with other people. We we all have similar baseline access to horses. And, you know, when I was a teenager competing my thoroughbred at dressage, Wendy Schaefer might be warming up to go in the arena next to me. And Gillian Rolton might ride past as well. We can't underestimate how important it was that we got to share space with those people. And they made us think that what they were doing was achievable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The horses that you've had, is there a particular horse that stands out that you think has been influential or a couple? How does that work? I've had only four or five horses in the, what am I, I'm 40 now, mm-hmm. started riding when I was 13. So not as many horses as a lot of people would have. And I'm just an amateur. There's one horse who I bought. She was my dream horse, a warm blood mare with a tiny percentage of Arab blood. Her name's Lavatsa and I still own her. And she's the horse that, you know, as far as you, you're asking about quotations, which I then translated to mantras, mm. and there's one that Lavatsa taught me, which is to treat every ride like it's your last. Like you never know when might be your last ride on a particular horse. I mean, they, they are such fragile creatures. And I don't, I don't want to get morbid for you, viewers, but we all know that bad things can happen to horses easily. And I think it's really important to think, if, if today is the last time I get to take this horse to a dressage test, if I wake up tomorrow and find something horrible happened to that horse, what will my thoughts be? Mm. Will my thoughts be, I'm so glad that I just spent a couple minutes holding that horse while it grazed and in, enjoying that horse's company and the privilege of being able to sit on its back at that last competition? Or will my thoughts be, oh, my God, I can't believe I badgered that horse around, you know, mm. a trot because mm. it was lazy. Mm. Yep. Or I went and put my spurs on because my lateral work wasn't good enough. Mm-hmm. I think we have to always keep that in mind. Every ride could be your last, you know, for the horse's reasons or maybe even your own. And you want to make that enjoyable for you and the horse. Yep, yep. And I say this, of course, because Levatsa broke down. Mm-hmm. But that's the lesson that she taught me. All right, I think that's probably a good lesson and probably a good thing going in, you know, to ride out a competition, training session. Yeah. 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 And this, if I can just touch on something else, I think competition is a great thing and It keeps a lot of us together and it's what drives a lot of riders. But the risk with competition is that you put your perception of your horse in someone else's hands. Mm -hmm. You can. There's a risk that you come home from a show and instead of thinking for yourself how the horse went, you might absorb the judge's perception. So in hacking or showing, I think it's really easy to come home and because you didn't get champion, see your horse's 
not as good as you would have thought it was if it had come home with a champion sash around its neck. Mm-hmm. I think we have to be really mindful as competitors to be really solid and grounded in our own opinions about what will make us happy, Yes. what, what our horses will do to make us happy. And we need to decide this before we go to the competition. It needs to be something like, you know, I hope I get an eight for my loose rein walk today. Yeah. And whether mm-hmm. you come home, you know, eliminated or with eighth place or with first place, mm-hmm. I think we have to keep those those achievements separate from the ones that we set for ourselves. And I think looking in the long term too, you know, it's a competition, it's one day or, you know, if it goes over a couple of days, but looking in the long term, not just in the long term with that particular horse, yeah. but in the long term of yourself with learning, yeah. I think there's a lot more to look at than just one day or one yeah. event, one class, you know? Yeah. Yeah, this reminds me of something which I'm going to attribute to Sandra Pearson Adams. Mm-hmm. I can't be sure, but in my head these two things are linked, is don't look at your progress from one day to the next or one competition to the next or one week to the next. But what happened, how were you going last year compared to this year? Yep. Because our progress goes up and down and does loops and swings and roundabouts and all those kinds of things. And so you're right, we do have to look at the big picture. Mm-hmm. And we need to think forwards into the future, but we also have to think quite far into the past of what, what we were achieving you know, when we first got a horse or we first started a partnership. Yeah, yeah. All right. Now, what do you think your proudest moment's been? Was it with Lavazza? Was it with another horse? You tell me. I think I came second with Lavazza at state championships in South Australia, and we had a really good score. I could look at this up on the EA website. It might have been 72 or 74%. And I think that was my second place and was probably a novice. And I was stoked. I was so happy with myself because the people who were beating me were professional riders. They ride, I don't know how many horses a day, every day. Mm. And I rode Lavazza four days a week. And so I was really proud of myself that day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a standout <laughs> memory. Yeah, yeah. And now, besides not having the time to ride, which, you know, you might think has been your biggest challenge, what do you think your biggest challenge is? I've spoken about the biggest challenges in, in academia, mm. and that's getting getting the respect for studying equestrian culture and getting people to see it not as something frivolous or trivial or elite, but something that is really important mm-hmm. to the people who participate, but also really important to people who might not have the opportunity, but for whom we could create the opportunity to participate. Yes, yes. And with equine-assisted therapy, for example, I've been talking to some people about doing research on how equine-assisted therapy could have a role in building resilience amongst young children, especially bullied children. Mm-hmm. And the devil's advocate response I received was, well, yeah, but horses are expensive. So even if you find that they're useful, mm-hmm. no one's ever going to be able to afford to go for a ride. And my response to that is, well, in that case, we're talking about a social justice issue. If horses are good for people, then to only have a certain subset of the population who can access those benefits, that to me is a real social justice issue. And we can find models to make horses more accessible to people living in different parts of Australia. Maybe they're in an urban environment or people who don't have the economic capital to participate. In other countries like Sweden, for example, you'll find that Every town has a a local town municipal riding school and most people would have learnt to ride in the same way that in Australia we expect everybody knows how to swim. Mm. So I think there are models we have to think beyond the kind of frameworks that are being put in front of us already and and try and grow the sport in different ways and to make it more accessible. That's going to help us get the respect for what we do. 
which mm-hmm. will then drive the research, which is what we need to make sure we're evolving. Yep. And so we keep, keep questioning the ethics of what we're doing and how we can make people safer and horses happier. Mm-hmm. Now, just thinking about to do with your research, which is human-horse relations, what's a common fault, common problem that you see within the research that you've done that listeners could learn from from this call? I think, I mean, there's probably a lot I could say here. The first thing that comes to mind, which relates to the paper that I presented at the ISES conference last year, is about anthropomorphism, which is where we project things onto horses in a very human way and we expect that horses think like humans Mm -hmm. and therefore that's how we interpret them. And for experimental scientists, anthropomorphism is seen in a really negative way as really problematic because, of course, we don't know if horses think in the same way we do. Yep. And I try and take a less rigid view of that. I wouldn't say anthropomorphism is good or is bad. There's nothing innately good or bad about it. It's what the implications are of anthropomorphism for horse welfare. Mm-hmm. And in some instances, anthropomorphism can be really good for horse welfare. So when we really appreciate the fact that horses feel pain in the same way that we do, that forces us to reconsider, you know, kind of bits we use, how we use our nose bands, whether we allow whipping and racing and all sorts of things. So it's important that we see horses. In many ways, horses are like us. They are like humans Mm -hmm. and we can relate to them and we do relate to them based on the fact that we think we share things with them. But there are other things that where anthropomorphism can lead to negative outcomes for horses and that's where people attribute something much more complex to a horse such as You know, this horse knew that he wasn't supposed to be doing that and he just did this to annoy me. Or my horse knew he was on this side of the fence and was being judged and so that's why he misbehaved. And it's not so much that that might be, that might not actually be going on, but that that belief may then justify the human doing certain things to the horse in, say, retribution. And is that like a delayed response as well? You know, that the human thinks that the horse understands why he received this delayed response, you know, 10 minutes, half an hour, an hour later? Yeah, definitely, that, that, that the horse is sitting there thinking and planning and plotting yes. and that the horse will make sense of what happened much later, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. science suggests that horses don't think that way at all. Mm-hmm. And I'm pretty sure it was Charles de Comfy who said, he, he philosophised that horses live in a kind of dreamlike state. I'm sure one of his books ended with him actually philosophising about what's it like to be a horse. He said they were just sort of in this dreamlike state and things happened to them and they didn't. And I just bring that up because he he, he didn't, he didn't philosophise either that horses were sitting there thinking of plotting what to do. <laughs> but even if horses did do that, it's still a human responsibility to work out how to get along with that animal. Mm, mm, mm. You know, most horses exist because a human decided to breed them. Yep. Horses' lives are really controlled by human needs and wants and that comes with a, a hell of a lot of responsibility. I don't think we realise that as much as we should. And, you know, I've written in a lot of my papers when we're talking about human-horse relations, what might make them different from human-dog relations or human-cat relations. Well, think of how many other animals that we actually sit on. Um, how many other animals do we interact with, you know, metal in their mouths or um, metal on their sides? It would be un- totally unacceptable to, you know, sit on a dog and ride in a particular kind of way. But we're so, we have such a long history. What's have been domesticated for maybe 5,000 years. I don't know how long we've been riding them for off the top of my head. But it just seems like the norm to us 
that we would sit on a horse and do these things. Mm. And so we take that for granted and we don't think about it at all. But if, if horses never existed and you open the newspaper and there was a story that said, you know, this new animal was being found deep in the Amazon and it turns out to be a horse. And if then you found out that somebody was keeping it in, in a tiny box, separated from its friends in the zoo-like scenario, which many of our stable mm. um, setups are like, and that then someone decided to sit on it and make jump things, mm. it would sound completely ludicrous to you. And I'm not saying that what we do with horses now is ludicrous, but we need to step back and actually really critically think about what we're doing with them because the rest of the world is watching. And we know the kind of social media that, you know, greyhound racing is receiving bad press, horse racing has been receiving bad press for a long time. And so we need to be aware of what we're doing, not only for the sake of our horses, of course, but for the sake of the social licence that we have to do the things with horses that we do. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, it can be. You know, you do something just a little bit wrong and it can be just blown up out of proportion because of the availability mm. of social media or, you know, people's perceptions of something. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And, and that's not necessarily a bad thing because if we can't justify what we're doing, mm. if we don't have, exactly. you know, the yeah. evidence or a plausible rationale to say, well, actually we don't know a better way to do this Mm. and we think that we've got a right to do this, then maybe it's good that somebody got us to think about it. Sure, sure. Oh, hang on a sec. Let me interrupt to let people know about the horse industry qualifications at onlinehorsecollege.com. If you have a look at the flexible options, there's online theory and the practical components can be completed by video or with a qualified expert in your area. That website again is onlinehorsecollege.com horsecollege.com. Okay, thanks. Have you got a book that you can recommend to our listeners to complement their I training? I sure do. Oh, you've already said about <laughs> Tom Roberts and Charles, but anyway, keep going. I think you've got one for yeah, us. there's Tom Roberts and there's the little book that it's called Go Forward, Dear, and the title will make sense if you read it. That's a book about Tom Roberts and that's a really easy little book to read that um, it's written by Nikki Stewart and Andrew McLean and you get a lot out of that about about Tom Roberts himself, about equitation science principles and different philosophies in Europe about riding. Mm-hmm. So I definitely recommend that. And I'm the I'm the chair of the Horse Federation of SA, so it would be remiss of me to not recommend that book that we were involved with. But as an author by myself, there's a book that I've written with Linda Burke. The book is called Unstable Relations, Horses, Humans and Social Agency. And that was published by Rootledge this year. And the book really challenges us to think about who horses are and who we think they are depends, of course, on where we're coming from. So an equitation scientist thinks of a horse as a very different kind of animal to you know, someone who might be training in the Pirelli style or somebody who's an expert on wild horses, for example. But um, the book is mostly about how we can recognise that horses are sentient beings with their own thoughts and feelings and desires. Um, how can we incorporate that into horse riding activity, which is generally something that we are directing, but how can we do that in a way that is ethical and also enjoyable for horses? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I've got to say, I love the name, Unstable Relations. Yeah, thanks very much. That was nice. <laughs> <laughs> but they are. Think of all the effort that we put into, all the labour we do, every nanosecond that we're with our horses, mm. actually we're working hard to keep things as stable as possible all the time. Mm-hmm. We don't just mm-hmm. achieve a great relationship with our horse and then never have to invest in, in that relationship again yep. or never have to train again. Every single moment, horses are changing, the environment's changing, 
horses spook, horses have bad days. Mm-hmm. Horse riding actually, and maybe that's one of the things that draws me to it, is horse riding, is it's a physical activity, but it's very intellectual. You're always thinking, you're always reappraising. And it was Wendy Schaefer who told us at a pony club camp that horse riding was one of the few sports where you were an athlete as well as a coach. Now we're competing, but we're also coaching our horses. It's really complex and there's a lot to engage our bodies and our minds. Mm-hmm. There's not, not many other sports like it. Yes, yes, that's right. Exactly, exactly. Now, what are you looking forward to at the moment, Kiralee? I've recently put in an application for research funding, which would be taking my research in quite an, a new area. Because my, my research into horses is very much research into horse people, mm-hmm. and I'm looking at taking that out of the kind of domestic horse concept and the competition sphere and looking at wild and semi-wild horses and very much thinking or it's very much inspired by the debates, really heated debates we have in Australia about the horses in the snowy mountains and people's debates about whether horses have a right to be there or not, debates over whether we see the horse as a pest, a non-native species, an animal that's actually naturalised into the environment introduced or invasive, all these labels that we give horses justify different means of managing them. Mm-hmm. And so that's where I'm trying to take my research at the moment, which is looking at, I guess, the role of those wild horses in Australia, the role they have culturally, but but how we can get ecologists and animal behaviourists and biologists together to work out a way forward mm-hmm. for those horses mm-hmm. so that they are healthy um, yep. and so that the environment is healthy. We don't live in a world anymore where we can turn back the clock to, you know, pre the appearance of white people in Australia. We're never going to go back to that state and nature never does exist in a fixed state. So I think eradication is probably out of the question and and we don't know what we're eradicating one species to and the impact of that on the the rest of the ecosystem. Mm -hmm. So there are also advantages that wild horses might have in in wilderness areas and in other countries we've seen that through conservation grazing for example horses can really reinvigorate areas mm-hmm. so just so much that comes out of thinking about wild horses yeah <laughs> yeah we have to get you back to talk about your research and what you find out there that would be great but before we go can you summarize your philosophy with the horse human or human horse relations it's a privilege not an entitlement mm-hmm It's a privilege to be around horses and it's something that we need to protect if we want to keep having that privilege. We need to do the right thing. And sometimes that means we have to face some things about ourselves that we don't like or our own sport or the way things are happening. But we need to work out a way to create change and improvement without putting people offside because we can achieve much more as a whole than as you know, individuals struggling or fighting amongst each other. So how do we all work together to make, uh, this is going to sound a little bit glib, but to make the world a better place mm-hmm. for humans and horses? And I see a lot of fractioning of the horse group right now, but we have a lot in common and we should draw from that. Yep, and I think that's very good, very good message. Now, how can people contact you, Curly? If you do a Google, mm-hmm. <laughs> just do a Google search for Curly Thompson, I'll pop up in all sorts of places. <laughs> Mostly I work for Central Queensland University. Yep. I'm an associate professor in our Appleton Institute, which is in Adelaide. Mm-hmm. I think you have um, 14 or more campuses around Australia. So you might be confused. You might think I'm in Brisbane, but I actually live in Adelaide. Mm-hmm. 
So you'll probably find me through there. I'm also the chair of the Horse Federation of South Australia, mm-hmm. and you can find me on all the usual places like LinkedIn and Twitter. And also, too, you'll be on horsechats.com slash Thompson, or just go to horsechats.com and search for Kiralee. Yeah. Kiralee, thank you. Thank you. I think the information you've given us about, you know, just even, even in your summary about it's a privilege, not an entitlement, and we need to work together to keep that privilege happening. And I think your research has got us well on the right track and we just need to keep going, you know, so that we continue to ride enjoy our horses and be able to interact with them so thank you and hopefully we'll catch up again sometime soon i hope so thank you so much thank you if you've enjoyed this chat then please comment rate and subscribe if you'd like any changes or recommendations for guests then please contact us through horsechats.com and while you're online have a look at the government accredited courses at internationalhorsecollege.com registered training organization 31352 Remember that our comments and instructions are general in nature and do not take into consideration your individual horses or your individual ability and circumstances. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please leave your comment below 